Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Two men enter, one man leaves. Today we are discussing Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. This is your co-host Corbin. I'm Alan. This is the third entry in the Mad Max retrospective series leading up to Mad Max Fury Road, the end of the road, possibly for now, I kind of hope not, but I'm the newbie to this one. I have not seen Thunderdome, and I hadn't seen the previous two films as well, and if you are in the same camp as me, and Alan did see the first movie, because he owns it on Blu-ray. Yes. Yes, I have only seen, of the the four we're going to talk about, the first one is the only one that I've seen. Oh, and the fourth one. That's right. So if you're like us and you were going in spoiler free and you want to remain spoiler free, then go ahead and check out episodes one and two so you can be caught up and listen to us discuss three. And of course, we will be getting to three, but we will give you the spoiler warning when the time comes. It's not yet. So if you're interested, you can stick with us for a little while longer, but make sure to go ahead and check out episodes one and two, where we review the first two films. And also, I just wanted to let you know right off the bat here that you can follow us on social media so you don't miss out when we do publish these things. Also, you can subscribe through email. All of those links are in the description below. Very easy to find. And also, if you do want these podcasts to remain free, you do like what we're doing, you do want to support us, then for the price of just a Starbucks cup of coffee, you can get bonus reviews, movie commentaries, our thoughts on the latest news and trailers. If you want to thought, know what we thought of the brand new Star Wars trailer that just dropped, well, by the time of this recording, it will have dropped about a week ago, probably. Right. Well, then you can know what we thought by going over to our Patreon page, just giving us a couple bucks, and that is your premium content to keep forever. The cup of coffee you drink is gone. This is the content that you can download and keep forever. So just a heads up to keep in mind something to go and look through. But let's go ahead and talk about the info kind of surrounding Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. This was... Like we discussed, they were kind of uh, popular movies at the time when they came out. And I would say especially Thunderdome, just the word, has developed more of a cultural significance than maybe even this movie itself. Yeah, it's it's interesting that this Thunderdome word has also kind of been used in reference to this movie. Uh, but yeah, you're very much correct. The The word itself, Thunderdome, it probably has more of a legacy than the rest of this movie does. And um, what's interesting is in the very first podcast of our Mad Mad Max retrospective, we talked about George Miller being only one of two people to start creating the Mad Max world because his partner would become Byron Kennedy. Um, Unfortunately, between movies two and three, Byron Kennedy got himself into a, a helicopter crash and he died. And so for a while... George Miller didn't know if he actually wanted to get back into doing Mad Max again. Uh, and he eventually did and pulled on another guy named George Ogilvie to help him. Uh, but yeah, for and the reason why he did it is because he wanted to get himself kind of out of this depression of his of his buddy, uh, Byron Kennedy. And at the end of the movie, this isn't a spoiler, but at the end of the, at the, end of the movie, during the credits, 
uh, it does say for Byron at the end. So this movie is pretty much in dedication to Mr. Kennedy, who died in, I believe, 83. Yeah, that is sad. I noticed that at the very end of the movie, there is that uh, ending thing where it says in the bottom corner for Byron. And I didn't remember who Byron was, so I did have to look yeah. that up. And you're right, he did die for b- before this movie was made. And the the other guy you mentioned, I don't remember his name. His last name is a little hard to pronounce. Didn't he co-direct this movie with George Miller? Yeah, there are two directors. George Miller and, yeah, George Ogilvie are the two that directed this one. So, uh, yeah, he like I said, he brought him on as, as basically the Byron Kennedy stand-in, more or less. And by this point in, uh, I believe, in 85... Mel Gibson had become a bit more of a famous actor because when he first started yeah. out, they, you know, who's who's Mel Gibson? Nobody really knew. Right. Right. And what's also interesting, too, is George Ogilvie. I looked at his filmography as well, and he hasn't done too much. This is pretty much his claim to oh. fame is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Everything else is either TV or a TV movie. I did find one actual full-length feature film that he did with Russell Crowe called The Crossing, which I haven't heard of. So aside from that, uh, this is probably his most popular work. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that's a good one to jump on, the third installment of an already popular series. Right, right. But yeah, that... Uh, this was pretty early on in his career as well. So everything else since Beyond Thunderdome, he hasn't done really much that uh, I guess is as popular as Mad Max Th- Beyond Thunderdome was. So, and when this movie came out, go. it was popular. It was very popular. I read one review by none other than Roger Ebert, who gave it his rating. Four out of four stars, his highest rating. Considered it yeah. one of the best movies of 1985, the best in the franchise of the trilogy. I was I was surprised he right. gave it that high of praise. And it also makes sense because with this movie, they were going for a wider audience. The previous two installments had been rated R. This is the first PG-13 release, so much more people could go see it. Yeah, which is very interesting considering, you know, the legacy that Mad Max has kind of built up until this point. Uh, In terms of numbers, it's reported that they had about a $10 million budget, which is about, I think, $3 million more than the previous movie. Uh, They opened with $7.2 million, so pretty close, but but not great. And they ended with about $36 million domestically. That's just in the U.S. So I looked everywhere, couldn't find any worldwide numbers. So still, though, $36 million for this movie is pretty good. And I'm sure that the worldwide is like probably double that, I would, I would at least assume. But yeah, still pretty good numbers for Mad Max. Still very strong, especially from the last one and even the first one as well. Oh, yeah, they did triple their budget. So that's really good. Plus, considering where George Miller started and came from with the first movie being... Right. A very small like right. budget of, from what I remember, it was like $300,000 maybe. And it was just a smaller right. indie project. So being able to come back to the movie, you know, it's been, I don't know, like seven, eight years since the original Mad Max. It's been quite a while 
So coming back to it and having a more significant budget and being able to uh, kind of do something a little bit different with it, but still solidify that world, like explore it more. It's uh, it's interesting that George Miller came back to it. Not as interesting as him coming back to a fourth installment many, many years later, but we will talk about that next right. time. Right. So a little small correction here. The last movie had about $2 million of budget, not $7 oh, million. Wow. I got that confused with something else. That's a definite yeah. increase. But... Yeah, that's what five times the uh, budget that they had before. Yep. However, uh, it when it opened, it went up against uh, a little movie called uh, Back to the Future. Uh... So it opened at number two with Back to the Future at number one, and it stayed that way for the first two weeks. And then National Lampoon's European Vacation came out, and that took the number one spot. Bumped Back to the Future down to number two, Black Cauldron number three, and Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome number four on week, I think, three. So there you go. It didn't ever reach number one in the box office. It was kind of foresh- overshadowed by Back to the Future, which I'm not really sure how long it had been out before Mad Max came in. I want to check that out real quick. That doesn't really surprise me that it never came in at number one because the other two films I don't think were ever number one. They were always moderately successful, and even in the public's eye, they're like, right. yeah, they're they're kind of fun Australian movies. They're they're interesting, sure. So coming in at number four is pretty good for. I'd say it's pretty good expectations. Right. And Back to the Future had already been out for a week. It came out the week previous oh. to this one. I think this was released on July, 20th, July 17th, so actually about two weeks. So, it, yeah, it, Back to the Future, once it bumped down to number two, it had been in for over a month, pretty much. So, right, there you go. I mean, for a Mad Max movie, it's not bad, but it's not great either. Yeah, 85 was a pretty good year for films. I know Goonies came out that year. Uh, There was an Indiana Jones movie that had to come out the year before. So we're kind of right in the thick of it in at least what I kind of remember and think of this classic 80s golden age where Spielberg was doing some really fun movies. Zemeckis was also... And we'll talk about it in this review, but this feels very much in the vein of a Spielbergian Zemeckis type film, very 80s, very much more so focused on the more so fun aspect of the of the world instead of being a bleak uh, post-apocalyptic world. Right, right. And this did also get a Golden Globe. What? For the be- for the song "We Don't Need Another Hero," which I believe was sung oh by Tina Turner, you know, one of the main actresses. Uh, actually, she's one. She's like the main antagonist of this movie. Yeah. So yeah, she won, or they got a Golden Globe for the best original song. I think actually they were nominated okay. for it, uh, but still Golden That's Globe. A little weird. So there you go. Well, yeah, it's not not the Oscar for best original song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, I did check out the trailer for this movie. I wanted to get myself in the mindset if I was a teenager and or even a young adult in 1985 and I saw this trailer, would I be interested in seeing this movie? Based on the trailer, it's really exciting. It would get me in the theater, but 
it is one of those trailers that's a highlight reel of the film. It shows off yeah. the whole movie, at least the best parts of it anyway. So I don't really like that because then my expectations are higher than they should be considering the whole movie is going to be like this. And I'm like, wow, if that's just what we see in the trailer. Then the best must be yet to come in the entire film. I did watch the trailer after right. I saw the movie. So then I was able to see like, oh, this is kind of the whole movie. So I wouldn't recommend um, watching the trailer first. If you're going to watch this movie, watch it first. And then if you want to watch the trailer, because it it's I just don't like those kind of trailers, though. Yeah, it's very much focused on action, which, to be fair, every other Mad Max movie of the two that come out until this point have been primarily focused on action. Whereas this movie is kind of considered to be the black sheep of the Mad Max uh, quadrilogy at this point. Because it takes a more, uh, I guess, character study approach than it does an action movie. So... I can see why they decided to go for, like you said, the highlight reel of all the action scenes for this trailer because everything else that had been set up to for Mad Max up until this point had been more focused on that, whereas this one is much different. Now, that is also a bad thing because it also, like probably what you're getting at, kind of paints it as this is going to be another one just like everything else, every other, every other two Mad Max movies, when in reality it's not so much that way. It's like I said, more of a character study than it is an action movie. Well, it also is the lowest rated on IMDb with a, it, it has true. a 6.3. Just to, to refresh, the first film was given a, well, this is all retrospect rev, um, ratings. This is not ratings based upon right. the time. So now audiences, viewers see the first film as a 7 the second as a fairly high 7.6, and then the third one takes a sharp drop off a cliff for most viewers. On average, it's a 6.3, and then Fury Road has an 8.1, so that'll tell you something. Um, but I did check the right. Rotten Tomatoes, and there's quite a disparity between critics and audiences, but critics really liked this one, though. Yeah, it's weird that they gave it an—it's standing right now at an 80%. Oh, yeah. That's weird. I do know that when it was released, it garnered quite a bit of very positive critical reception. Mm-hmm. Um, that, like I mentioned earlier, that is due to the fact that it's more character focused than it was in the last two. These that that t- tended to be the uh, consensus between all the critics here, uh, which is strange because, like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of considered to be the black sheep of the Mad Max quadrilogy here. I did check, and we have already reviewed a film in 1985, so this isn't our first time journeying to the 80s. We reviewed Commando. That's right. And that is wonderful oh, right. 80s cheese that I do recommend you check out. But 85 was a great year, like I mentioned. Also, Goonies, Back to the Future, The Breakfast Club, Rocky Four, Commando, got the sequel to A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, also, a little film we've also reviewed called Rambo First Blood Part 2. That's right. That was, uh, I believe, number four in the box office opening. Oh, yeah, number four in the box office opening weekend for Mad Max. Uh, First Blood Part 2 is number, right. was in the number yeah. four spot. 
So uh, Fletch also was one of the, I, I really enjoy Fletch. So it was a pretty good year. And as far as popularity goes for it being remembered, it's fairly high up there. I'm using Letterboxd right now to check the top movies of 85 based upon popularity. And yeah, Mad Max is in, oh, it just misses the top five. It's number 11. So pretty good. Oh man, yeah, still pretty. I mean, even though it, it, even though it is kind of the lowest rated Mad Max movie, com- at least in terms of the audience score, it's I would say by no means not remembered at all because it's still a part of the quadrilogy and critics still love it. I'm not, I wonder what the critic consensus would be today if they went back and watched it compared to when it was first released. I wonder what that would be like. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes kind of gives us an idea, but. It's not perfect. Yeah, either. I would be interested. Um, I don't know. My guess is that it would probably line up more with the thoughts of the IMDb users. And people would kind of look back on it not as fondly because, okay, how could they considering the action movies we have gotten since 85, especially since Miller came back with Fury Road And I'm not going to pretend like nobody didn't like that movie considering it got 10 Oscar nominations. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I just, it'd be interesting to know what that kind of idea is there. Because, yeah, you're right. We do have, we are now living in the shadow of Fury Road, which is not only Return to Mad Max, but also kind of a retelling uh, and a sequel as much as it is. Uh, as much as it is a reboot, so it it'll be inter- interesting to see how Mad how Mad Max Fury Road has kind of tainted the other three movies that have re- been released previous to it. Well, Alan, why don't you give them the plot for Beyond Thunderdome? But before you do that, listeners, we are giving you your spoiler warning right now. If you had if you have not seen Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and you do want to go in spoiler free, go ahead and click pause right now. Go check out the movie, come back and hit play, and we will be ready to discuss all the spoilers in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. After leaving the settlers and the gyro captain, Max still roams the desert, this time in a camel-drawn carriage. That is, he did until he was raided by a pilot and his son, who steal his camels and wagon, leaving Max alone in the desert. Max follows the trail, then comes across Barter Town, a city that has founded a new gas in pig poo. Methane, uh, to be more specific, replacing the gasoline of old, a high commodity in previous Mad Max films. Max is given the job by the leader of Buttertown, Auntie Entity, to take out a pair running the fuel production for the city named, named Master Blaster. Master is a small yet very smart man who rides in the back of a big brute named Blaster. Turns out Bartertown is under a power struggle between Anti and Master Blaster. Since the leader of the underworld, which is where the fuel production takes place, uh, Master Blaster is kind of in control uh, by means of his own. Because Anti is more of a, of a face, and Master Blaster has kind of subjugated his power into her by uh, kind of shutting down the power whenever he wants to remind her and the city that he is still in control. So Anti gives Max this uh to gives him the task of removing master blaster's control so she can regain and become top dog again so max threatens master blaster and gets blaster to fight him in the thunderdome a kid's jungle gym crossed with roman coliseum like battleground two men enter one man leave 
Auntie figures that if Laster is out of the picture, then it would be easier for her to remove Master's reign, of, reign as well. Max and Blaster fight, and Max manages to knock his helmet off, revealing that Blaster is mentally disabled. Max refuses to give the final blow, and due, the, due to this, Auntie has Blaster killed. Master imprisoned, and Max exiled via Gulag. The horse Max is mounted on dies in the middle of the desert, and Max collapses soon himself soon after. A preteen girl named Savannah comes across Max and brings him back to planet Earth, a tribe of children and teenagers. Max is mistaken for the legendary Captain Walker, a man who they believe will fly them into Tomorrow Morrowland. Max denies this and causes Savannah and a small group to leave the tribe and search for Tomorrow Morrowland. Max reaches them almost in time, but one of the kids sinks into the sand. With little supplies left, they are forced to sneak back into Parter Town with the aid of a man that Max befriended named Pig Killer. They take Master in a railway-bound vehicle and escape. As Barter Town Lee begins to tear itself apart from the inside, Auntie controls the people and orders them to return, to, ma- to return Master back to the city. During the chase, a kid from the child tribe successfully steals a pursuit- one of the pursuit vehicles, which turns out to be Max's stolen car. Max and crew get to Jedediah and Jedediah Jr., who aid them in their escape, which is the same pilot and son that stole Max's camels and belongings in the opening. Max clears a path for them to take off with his old vehicle, leaving the kids and the pilot father and son to safety on their small airplane. Auntie spares Max's life, leaving him to once again roam the desert, while the kids arrive in Sydney to find that it's not much different than the rest of the wasteland. Years later, we find that the kids begin another tribe there in the city, as Savannah tells the story of Max's kindness as credits roll. So as you can tell with this plot summary, it feels that to me, the mythos of this world is a bit more explored than in previous entries. And I'm not even necessarily counting the first one because the first one pretty much takes place in the civilized world. It's just kind of on the verge of collapse into this weird tribalism. The second one does kind of have... uh, the, what, what was he called? The Gigantor or something? The Humongous. That's right. Lord Humongous uh, is crew. Lord Humongous, yeah. And uh, the cool people in the white hockey pads. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just not explored whatsoever in the second one. This one, they, it does seem like there has a wor- there's a world that's been built. There are these weird tribes and settlements. And I will say right off the bat, that gets me more invested. Yeah, I like that they focus inwardly for pretty much almost all of this movie. It's, it's focus is not necessarily on the world that's outside of the characters, but the world that's inside the characters. For instance, Barter Town, it doesn't have other people like in the last one where the settlers are being threatened by Lord Humongous and his crew for their gas. And this one, they've made a gas that they can kind of replenish from the pigs that they store down below and they grab from their poo. They figured out the gas part. The problem here is more of a power struggle. There is two sides trying to control the whole town. One's controlling it via energy, and the other one's controlling it via governmental power-like uh, kind of a state. So it creates this dichotomy uh, between not only this tribe here the, here at the beginning with Barter Town, but also the kid tribe, which is a bit more pure and innocent, which also kind of is why Max in the beginning knocks off uh, the helmet of Blaster and doesn't give him the final blow and, and kind of leaves him to be killed by Anti. Um, he doesn't want to have that kind of blood on his hands, um, which is interesting because it kind of has there's a lot of back and forth between this, in this movie, a lot of contrast in terms of like him of Max protecting the kids from, I guess, becoming corrupt by the world around them, like Barter Town. 
like like Barter Town is. It's an inter- it's interesting that they explore Max's character and how he still feels for these kids and still is able to save them from what they would be from what would become corrupt like Barter Town there at least in the opening. And it does seem that with each entry Max becomes progressively more empathetic to characters in uh, kind of like weak vulnerable positions. Right. Now, not that Max hasn't been empathetic, but I will say his character has definitely changed since the first movie. And it's he he never wants to get involved in other people's business. He could care less whether they live or die. Right. But more so with I would probably say the end of the Road Warrior, you can see he's a bit more caring and then that's definitely carried over into this home. At first he's just kind of like, "Hey, just Let's just stay here and we won't mess with anybody. I've tried that stuff. It's just not going to work. I'm not going to be a nomad anymore once he gets to that uh, kind of lost tribe of kids, which they have weird names if you look in the credits, what each tribe is called. Right. But yeah, he he does seem to at least be more empathetic to that. So that can kind of help me latch on to him more as a character that seems to want to do the right thing. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that... They decided because, in some ways, he's kind of gone back to what he was in the very first movie, where he very much cares for his family. And now he, even though his family is dead at this point, uh, long dead, he is still finding people that he wants to care for. And this one, it's mainly the kids. the The kids that he comes across are planet or uh, planet Earth, I believe, is their tribe that they don't really mention. It's interesting that uh, there, for the even to begin with, there's a tribe of small children and teenagers that exist in the desert kind of in like this uh like foresty area it's interesting that they have this tribe to just kind of start off with and they already believe in this person uh, that's going to come and save them and take them to take them to civilization when they themselves have no idea how corrupt the world and this kind of become there in city the whole city is just covered in sand and it's there's like nobody there. It's interesting that they even uh, bring up the this tribe of children, uh, to which is more, which is pretty much a visual representation of Max and his pursuit of protecting innocence. Because maybe even he himself has seen how far one person can go because he did it back in previous movies. One thing that I did wish they would have done a better job with these world buildings because we do have a lot of characters. In a few different locations, and of course everybody's got to have a funky name because it's in the future where everybody is weird. Uh, They don't mention characters' names very often or their locations, so I'm just kind of left with these nebulous notions of where they are, who, who they're against, and maybe that is meant to give us more of a sense of bewilderment, just like Max has dropped into these situations. He doesn't really know what's going on. Neither do we, but it would have been a little more helpful to latch on and give these tribes and characters more of a distinctive identity. Not that they're not, but just at least calling that out by name in more of a distinctive manner, I think would have helped my engagement with all these different characters. Yeah, and coming from a guy who's just already terrible with names, this is almost a nightmare to get <laughs> yeah. to get around. Because I'm writing my notes, okay, this person, I have to like describe the person because I don't know the name. Because mm-hmm. they either haven't said it or they said it like one time yeah. in really quick dialogue somewhere like five minutes ago. So, yeah, it's 
it, if you're looking for names, this is not the best movie, I guess. Uh, because like Corbin was just talking about, they don't really get into that kind of thing. They don't really talk about this is like, they don't really call character other characters by name really hardly ever aside from master blast, I think is the one that they taught when they talked about the most in the opening. Yes. We hear master blaster a lot, which is so easy to remember and know. Yeah. Also, um, auntie Tina Turner is auntie. That's pretty easy to remember. It was odd Tina Turner's in this movie. I've seen her in yeah. anything else. I know she is musically inclined. She's a musician. She's a singer. From what I saw in her IMDb filmography, she was in The Who's kind of sort of rock you movie called Tommy. She was the Acid Queen, which makes sense because that's about singing. And then she was in this. She didn't sing in this movie, thankfully. I couldn't take it if somebody started singing in this movie. And I don't think she's really done much after that. She kind of makes her own music video type movies. But yeah, I I mean, she does pretty good. She does fine. It's just an odd choice. Yeah, it is an odd choice. But yeah, like you were saying, she does fine. She, you wouldn't, I honestly didn't know Sustina Turner because I don't really know what she, didn't really know what she looked like up until this point. Uh, she does fit rather well into this Mad Max world. It's also interesting that, I mean, given what Mad Max has already kind of created, it's very much a man who rules this world kind of setting that they're already in. The exception kind of being the the settler town in Mad Max 2 where there are definitely women warriors, but they are kind of also overshadowed by their male counterparts. This one, we have a woman who already rules, technically rules, the town of Butter, the Butter Town, which we find out she kind of is the one who built this up from the ground and to where it is now. And now her power is being, uh, I guess, threatened or ha- it is already put to question with Master Blaster coming in, which is interesting because we find out at the beginning that Master Blaster is the one who's really in control um, of this town. And we we at first were thinking that Master Blaster is going to be the antagonist of the story. That's only true for about 30 minutes. After about maybe halfway through, the uh, antagonist switches to auntie which is i found to be very interesting yeah let's kind of talk about that whole what i'm going to say is a bit too convoluted of this kind of power struggle that max is just dropped into i gotta say it was a little confusing because first of all max his equipment is stolen by the guy who played gyro the gyro captain in the last movie but he's not the same character yeah, that confused me a bit too because I wrote in my notes, is that the Gyro Captain? Yeah. Which we found out later their names are Jedediah and Jedediah Jr. But yeah, you are very correct. That is oddly strange and very confusing that they would bring back the same actor for the Gyro Captain to play a different character here. Yeah, I just wish they wouldn't have done that. Especially, I mean, maybe if they had given it uh, one film in between to have brought him back. But to me, that's really confusing when you have a central character in one movie and then you cast the same actor and he's not really a central character, but he still is very important to this plot. And then he's not the same character. And it's just like, why? I mean, I'm sure you liked working with him and you thought he could do a good job, but he's just not given enough in this movie to make him distinctive enough to warrant casting him. That just confused me right off the bat. Right. I mean, in some ways it is kind of funny because 
in the first in Mad Max to the Road Warrior, Max tries to steal his stuff, and then it, he kind of flips the yeah, head in this true. one where he steals Max's stuff. It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't really work. Don't get me wrong, but it is just kind of funny to think about it that way, assuming that they're the same character, which they really aren't. They're two different characters uh, from those two different movies. But yeah, it is still very confusing to bring this character back because I would have swore that was the Gyro Captain until later when I checked his uh, the IMDb page for this. His son is funnier than him. He's more of a character anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he is. Well, okay. But here's something also kind of interesting about Barter Town, which we kind of get hints of here in the opening when Max is kind of walking through and there's like a market and stuff. And this guy is selling what he calls pure water yeah. with air quotes. And Max pulls out his uh, mm-hmm. Geiger counter and it goes, goes haywire. And he goes, what's wrong with the little radioactivity? <laughs> you get this sense that even though this town looks really shiny on the outside, it's the inside that is totally corrupt. Uh, be, just by this alone. And then they, of course, expand on that much more with the power struggle and whatnot. But yeah, we do get the sense that, yeah, this town is... Uh, very corrupt. It's almost Nineveh-esque, I guess you could say. Yes, it very much is so. And that is one of the things that draws me in is some of the look of these characters is reminiscent of um, Humongous's clan in The Road Warrior. But nevertheless, everybody has their own distinctive look. To me, it feels like the world building is complete here with how this Mad Max universe is going to go. This is the way of the world. So I'm immediately drawn in with Max's look. He has really long hair and he's got like silver tips coming out of his sideburns and they are apparently dealing in slaves. So it's very much reverted to kind of Old Testament. Clearly the term barter is a very old world type of thing. And Max does encounter some colorful characters we get a very, very much a ripoff of an Indiana Jones scene where the guy pulls out like these nunchucks and Max shoots the feather over his head. Oh, so yeah, Max is absolutely. kind of like, hey, I'm still living in what used to be modernity. You guys have reverted, reverted back. So don't mess with me. And the whole reason he comes there is he comes to find Jedediah. He comes to find his stuff. But then this big guy takes him to Auntie and Auntie says, OK, I'll help you out. But first, you got to take out, you got to challenge Master Blaster to a fight. We want to keep Master, but get rid of Blaster. And the whole way they go about connecting these dots feels too convoluted. At least that's the way it came across to me, because Max's goal all of a sudden shifted to a brand new motivation from Auntie. And it took a bit to kind of unravel where they were going with all of this. Right. Yeah, this opening, it, it's kind of like a false sense of, uh, of I guess, progression at first. Because you think we're going to go one way, but then after a certain point, the it pretty much there's a twist. And you find out that Auntie is really the, the villain of the whole story. Uh, whereas originally you thought it was Master Blaster. So yeah, this, for, this whole opening, which is honestly nothing new to the Mad Max world here, because this is... Almost, this is very, very similar to the to the previous movie where Max is taken prisoner by the settlers, and then he says, "Give me gas as much as I can carry to go find my stuff and get you a semi," is what he tells him. Right. So this is nothing new to the Mad Max world to begin with. What makes it new is when we introduce 
uh, the real antagonist, which is Anti. Uh, we we don't know this until the uh, Thunderdome scene after he defeats Blaster. We find out that Anti's in reality she's the one who's the real antagonist here. Uh, in terms of I guess or really in terms of what this main theme is, which is keeping innocence or protecting against corruption. And when they do get to the Thunderdome. I th- I would say the scene with the announcer, which feels like a very Tim Burton-esque scene, that's probably yeah. one of the best scenes of the movie, just at least atmosphere-wise, where the lighting looks pretty good, where everybody's on top of this cage, which kind of resembles right. one of those things you would see on a playground, where the kids, kids can climb up on top of the kind of spiderweb dome thing, yeah. uh, except it's for adults for killing each other. Dying times here. Great line. And also they refer to Max as the man with no name, which has to be a clear reference to Clint Eastwood's character in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, or more pointedly, the man with no name trilogy. So this is kind of the world they're setting up, and I'm going with it, and I'm excited for to see this fight between, well, I guess Master gets to hang out while Blaster does all the, the dirty work. Them flinging around right. on ropes seems perfectly... Like eighties cheese, <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, but I'm going with it. It's it's still fun. Yeah, it, it's this is also kind of a, a visual representation of you know the child's playground piece now being used for like gladiator fights more or less, where two men enter and they fight until one of them dies. Pretty much, it's interesting. It's a rough visual, but it's definitely one that I feel works for what what is to come later when we meet these kids. Uh, in their own little world. So yeah, this scene, building up to this scene, I thought was very interesting. It, now, of course, this visual isn't exactly hammered at home until much later. But yeah, this scene is very interesting how they have them on bungee ropes on the spindles uh, that, that they rotate around. It's it's It feels very Mad Max, but at the same time still has that 80s cheese to it. It's a fun action scene, don't get me wrong. And I know Roger Ebert loved this. Uh, oh, yeah. But I don't think it's really anything spectacular, and that might just be due to age. I'm sure that's it. And despite this being the really only scene we get of the Thunderdome and the movie being called Beyond Thunderdome, now he literally travels beyond the Thunderdome to planet Earth or whatever it's called. I didn't even hear that in the movie. I saw yeah, it on it Wikipedia, though. I don't, yeah, I, I didn't remember if I heard it either, but yeah, mine was from wikipedia just as much just as well so yeah one of those things this this also isn't necessarily new to have things just not be named in the mad max world but this is also one that's somewhat important so well the concept of the thunderdome is fascinating because auntie explains it at well maybe not auntie i think the announcer explains it as Killing leads to warring, so what we saw in the last movie was kind of a warring between the humongous faction and the hockey pad people, whatever they're called, and they're saying, we've kind of solved those problems. If there is some major problem, you're going to fight it out to the death, let the best man win, and that's how we're going to keep the world civilized, which is not very civilized. That's a very ancient world type of uh, civilization, more so it seems about bloodlust than justice or anything playing off of people's kind of animal desires and that's contrasted with um 
the Beyond Thunderdome. They're getting out of that old world style and they're returning more so back to the city, back to civilization, which we do see them fly out of the desert and into the city there at the very end where it's much more peaceful and tranquil. And it's it's better than them living there in the jungle because honestly, that's just kind of this little delusional world that's going nowhere. Whereas yeah. it's better that they are able to get out into the real world and progress because they're essentially stuck living in the past with this very tribal caveman storytelling. So those three kind of archetypal concepts, I think, are fairly well explored and meaningful in this movie. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that we have two groups, one of them which is very more corrupt with how it handles uh I guess, more diplomatic measures. And then the other one, in contrast, that is also still stuck in the past, but has more of an innocent side to them. They are waiting on some legend that will never come true. And they believe Max to be the one that they've been waiting for this whole time. And in reality, he has nothing to do with this whole story. So it's interesting that Max, who is very much the one who is living in, uh, I guess, more recent times, now having to deal with two sides of i guess humanity where they're stuck in the past and bring at least one of them out which is the kids here and into uh the more recent more present world where the others where the other town we don't really get a clear answer as to what happens to them after this after the whole escapade with them chasing down the kids and stuff but when he does get to the kids and some what seems like young adults possibly doesn't this feel like yeah. we just walked into a George Lucas movie or a Steven Spielberg movie? Yeah, that's probably one of the biggest issues I have is it feels like the Ewoks from Star Wars episode. That's six. what I put in my notes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the movie does kind of slow down quite a bit here. As they we try to explain where these kids came from, what their whole belief structure is here. Uh, I do wonder where the older folk of this group are. I don't know how long they've been here. They don't really give too much backstory aside from uh, uh, their captain that they know that that, that they've been heard they heard of from legend. There isn't really a lot of backstory to these kids aside from they just their legend that they have. So it and. and to complement that, like I mentioned earlier, the movie just kind of begins to slow down almost to a halt when we introduce these kids here. Because we have to introduce brand new characters 35 minutes into this movie. Yeah, it feels really abrupt and almost like we've just been landed into a completely different movie. And I'm not sure how they're going to yeah. tie everything together because the whole Thunderdome is the first act of the movie and they really get you into that world. And then it's like, nope, we're, we're done with that. Now you're going to what many kind of criticized and felt was a pretty big ripoff of Peter Pan, where they go to yeah. Neverland, essentially. These are the Lost Boys. And I even compared it to Steven Spielberg's Hook, which is about Peter Pan. That wouldn't come um, till the early 90s, so a few years later. But nevertheless, it very much does have that George Lucas Spielbergian feel. Which I like that feel. I like that 80s nostalgia feel. But as for how it really flows and makes sense within the context of the movie, it doesn't really make sense. And, uh, yeah. Well, I would argue that it makes sense to have the kids here thematically wise, but the way that they go about it is 
a really bad way of presenting these kids in the story. Because in reality, they should have been set up from the beginning, like Barter Town was. But they weren't, for whatever editing choice that they made, they weren't set up like everything else. They were, they are introduced until, once again, 35 minutes into the movie. So we're, it, it makes, it gives off the sense that Act 1 is closer to an hour long than anything else because we're still doing setup. Act 1 is typically used for setup land, but it's it's weird that they decide to do this it's in in reality it's just poor editing uh, at its finest well and of course max is always the savior that just stumbles into these drastic circumstances with almost every movie and so i guess that's a little bit of my problem is to me it does feel just kind of out of nowhere and not that i don't not that i don't like where we're going like i'm giving it a chance i mean i really like this new waterfall set area in the jungle because quite frankly i'm a little sick of the desert it's just a little boring so that change of scenery is nice and i'm a sucker for big water set pieces especially from the 80s and their mythos is really interesting i like how the way they talk I like how the way they look. Uh, one of the things that does confuse me, though, is why is Max so keen on getting them to stay? Like, he's really, really keen on getting them because there is the tribe that stayed and the tribe that left. That's how they're building the credits. Right. And one tribe wants to leave, uh, I guess, to go find the Tomorrow Morrow Land, um, which kind of sounds like Neverland to me. But nevertheless, Max is like, hey, yeah. <laughs> hey, you got to stay and I'm going to shoot bullets at you to make you stay. And it's like, why? Just let him leave. Right. Yeah. I mean, considering that what we'll find out a bit later, too, is Max has become very protective of the of innocence, which is kind of hinted at when he fights Barter or not Barter, when he fights uh, Blaster and is more or less reinforced with everything to do with these kids he's very much on the side of he wants to protect the innocent so when he finds so when he hears that these kids are going that this part of the tribe is going to leave and go search for tomorrow Maryland, he knows for a fact that barter town is out there and he wants to keep them as far away as possible from barter town which he knows for a fact is corrupt so that would be the sole reason why he's wanting to stop them from going out and finding barter town which they end up having to do later uh, because he doesn't want them to become like every almost everybody else that he's met in this world of Mad Max and the Wasteland. That everyone's just kind of crazy and they have all uh, kind of gone to their more animalistic ways than they have progressed further to become better humans. So for me, it doesn't it doesn't really pull back from anything at all aside from a more of a pacing standpoint. Yeah, the the pacing definitely does suffer, especially once they do go look. Yeah. Once they do go look for them yeah. in the desert. And then he says, Barter Town is, that's our last hope or something. It's like, what? I don't know. But yeah, the other I thing that I wanted to say is one of the things that I think this movie is missing is Max is, like I said, always the guy that's dropped out of the sky or dropped into the middle of a big situation and he is always the messianic figure. But it always seems due yep. to just random chance that he there's just always this nebulous fate that somehow guides him there or they just accidentally find him. 
instead of some sort of divine providence where it's more so like, oh, I was meant to find you guys, which would give it a little bit more weight. There's just nothing really tying him into these kids or into him coming upon these situations, except he's just this miraculous wandering nomad, which I think does make for, it makes it a bit weaker. I think it would be a bit stronger if there was some more of providential tie-in with his purpose of of coming here or getting there. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with you because I, although I do enjoy the more character uh character study-esque feel of this movie, it still has its ties from Mad Max 2 where Max is dropped into this random situation that he has to that he feels he has to solve uh instead of like you were saying having a bit more of a prophetic uh, tie with it where he feels as if it's something that he must do because this is his way of going through life. This is what is given to him and he must do do with it. It's interesting that they decide, even though it's weird because Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome gives new things as much as it takes away uh, old, as much as it takes away from the good stuff. So for instance, although we are getting a lot more character building with, the, with Max's character, we're also taking a hit in terms of pure enjoyment and pacing so as much for as much as it introduces for new and good ideas there is also an equal amount taken away that are very critical in terms of uh that are that could be taken as criticisms and they're not are going against the movie than they are that might be due to the fact that it's keeping ties from its previous movie or keeping ties to what has already been established in the mad max universe it's it's kind of a mixed bag of a lot of things, and that even in itself is also a criticism that uh, for as many good things it brings up, there are an equal amount of bad things. What did you think of the score for this movie? Initially, in the opening credits, we have a really bad score, I thought, which gives you an idea of the tone this movie is headed for and who the audience is. Um, the only right. piece of score that I think I really liked was the initial barter town score where he's walking around, he's getting taken to auntie and it kind of sounded like bells, like cowbells or pots and pans just kind of all clanging together, but they worked fairly well together to kind of make this kind of rustic uh, score. It, it was interesting, but for the most part there is, it's kind of a fanciful score. I would describe it. Yeah, it very much is. And f from the beginning, I was kind of on edge because there were some pieces that I thought were really good and then there were some pieces that were really on mm -hmm. edge and didn't do a very good job. But as the movie went along, um, I found myself thinking that this, in, in an overall sense, this might be the best Mad Max score that we've had so far. And that might just be due to the fact that it actually takes its time to make sure that it points out the score instead of using it in the background for just like an action scene or whatever. They do really emphasize the score here, which is composed by somebody other than Brian May. Yes, that's true. Uh, Lurie, uh, Maurice uh, Lar, I think is his name? Jar. Maurice Jar is our new composer here. So in, in the end, um, it starts off somewhat weak, but then really solidifies itself. And I actually ended up really enjoying it and found it to be, up until this point, the best Mad Max score that we have. Now, when they do get back to Barter Town, their motive 
It doesn't seem incredibly specified as to why they need to go there. I guess we're just left with the assumption and what left with the action is that Max believes that Master, who they think is smart, and yeah, you probably do have to be smart in order to convert pig feces into fuel to power a town. I don't know if that's possible. I've never heard of such a thing. (laughs) Um, Neither do I. Um, it's, I'm guessing it's just made up for the story. But Master can't even speak in full sentences. So he doesn't really give me any assurance that he is just this genius. Um, even though they dress him up in like these 1930s style suit that they had for a midget lying around. What? Right. Where'd they get that? I don't know. But um, I guess one thing I did forget to mention was I do like the character of Master Blaster, where it's this like big kind of hulking guy that it looks like Resident Evil 4 ripped straight out. You know, those guys you fight, the Wolverine type guys in the castle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it looks like they ripped him right out of there. And this kind of like midget just like sitting on his head, just like riding around and they're like brains and brawn, the perfect combo. They can be deadly together. Yeah. Just watch out. I, I like that character. It's pretty funny. But I guess, is that what you got out of it? They think, hey, this guy will help propel us into the future. He's a smart old guy, so we need to take him and we need to make him work for us. Yeah, that's part of it. And the other half of it is he Max finds out, especially when he fights Blaster, that Master is more pure at heart than he initially thought. Uh, and the pursuit of knowledge, he's actually one of the smartest people there. So there's that as well. So yeah, it is strange. And I read off of Wikipedia that the reason they go to Barter Town is because they don't have enough supplies to get back. So they're going to, I guess, take oh. supplies from Barter Town. I don't remember if they mentioned that in the mm. movie, but that's what happens oh. apparently in the Wiki- when I read the Wikipedia summary. <laughs> so there's that. No. But yeah, it's... Master's character does kind of have an identity crisis here at the end because there's no good reason stated to keep him around why the kids uh, decide or why Max decides that he needs to go with the kids. It's kind of mentioned that it's an, like a, you know, a purity thing. Uh, he's more pure at heart than anybody else in Barter Town. So he wants to take him with him and give him with and let him stay with the kids. But that's only kind of stated uh, here. So it's. It's kind of muddy. It's it's clear as mud, I guess, because there really is no like reason why that's stated that he needs to go and Max needs to save him and he needs to go with the kids. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it too much, it doesn't make any sense because he was a pretty mean, uh, kind of vicious, totalitarian commander in the beginning. And right. then he's like this poor slave that the pigs knock around <laughs> and right. we're supposed to feel bad for him. And then they kind of play uh, football with them there at the end, which is really funny how they're just grabbing him on the trains and jumping around with him, just treating him like a human football. And then I guess he's a good guy. I just, I just wish he would have, they would have like been able to use him. There would have been some kind of redemption where he would have said, okay, this is how we're going to get the one up on auntie. Or this is how I can help you. There's just nothing there. To me, it's just too weak. They just go past it all too quickly. Yeah, his character needed more stuff. They needed to write more things for his character to do uh, for the story in order for him to really work in this ending. Because I feel like he could work. But I think he's also very underutilized 
especially here at the end where they're trying to save him and they're trying to give up all these reasons why they need to save him. It it doesn't fully connect here at the end why they feel the need that he must come with them. It, like I said, it I feel like we're missing just stuff for his character here. Now, d- doesn't this feel like a bit of a ripoff of the end of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where Indy frees the kids from the bottom of the temple where they kind of have that big fight scene at the end oh, with the yeah. kids. I mean, it's it's kind of in a similar location, the battle, similar bad guys. It all felt quite familiar. And once again, the implementation of kids being such a major part of this movie just said, just made me think this is an 80s movies for the tweens, for the early teenagers and 10 to 13 year olds or whatever. No, there are some scenes that, you know, are probably too violent for them and they get their one F word in. So it's not just yeah. this in a movie whatsoever, but I just couldn't help but feel the 80s nostalgia, especially directed towards a very younger audience. Yeah, and maybe as much as there's an identity crisis with Master, there's also kind of an identity crisis with this movie, especially in its second half, because... Yeah, like you were just saying, it's trying to hold all audiences within this whole movie. The problem is, partly due to already pre-established movies and uh, tones, they're already going to lose a number of your audience because they have always the other two have been rated R, and for good reason. This one does take a much different approach, uh, but at the same time may not work as good as it probably would have if they decided to keep it rated R. I I think that the addition of the kids is at this as much as it is, once again, as much as it is uh does help the story, it also begins to hurt the story because we can't do too many violent things with these kids around. And it also kind of hurts this ending action scene, for me at least. One of the things that really did hurt it, I thought, was this guy with the weird um, white masked lady sticking up out of his back. Oh, yeah. That he strapped yeah. on. His name's like Iron Bar or something. I, I always yep. refer to him as Iron Rod. He can't die. And that's completely on purpose because these are we're dealing with kids here. We don't want yeah. the kids to kill him. So this very much felt like I was watching a Saturday morning cartoon where the villain always falls into the water. He's not going to fall in the concrete and go splat. He's going to fall in the water. So he, I'm like, oh, okay, he's dead now. No, he just keeps coming back. So the fact they don't kill anyone in this movie makes it even more of a kid's film. And I'm not necessarily saying this is all bad, actually, because I'm having a pretty decent time with this movie. I would say more so decent than the other movies. And this type of movie, I would say, works better for me on like a Saturday afternoon where I just kind of want to have some fun 80s nostalgia, something a little cheesy, something not too serious that will just be fun to watch and I can rest my brain for the week. So this that's how this movie feels to me. Right. I would go for more on the, along the the argument that I think this is more on the levels of Mad Max 1 in terms of how it films its action scenes. Because at least with Mad Max 2, it had a lot of wide shots and they weren't all shaky. So you knew you got to see as much of the action as, as, as physically possible. Mad Max 1 has a lot more shaky cam. And this ending does have a lot of shaky cam and a lot of cutting. Um, not to say that it's necessarily bad action, but it is also at the same time somewhat cheesy action and there's also the fact that 
Mad Max and crew are on a railroad car. Yeah. On tracks. Different. So they can't exactly maneuver in and out aside from going faster or going uh, or going slower, which in my mind kind of severely impacts the action scene because it's them being pursued by the people from Bartertown, but they can't really do too much aside from once again, going faster or going slower. There's really no maneuvering that they can do. So it kind of almost cuts the entire action scene in half because the only ones doing the maneuvering are the opposite team. It tends to also kind of bring some of the enjoyment out of an action scene here. Whereas in previous, the last two movies, pretty much any party had free reign of the road here. I felt like I was watching back to the future part three with the train. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see it. I see it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a glaring omission that for this whole movie, there has been essentially no vehicular chases or nothing really exciting to do with yeah. vehicles. That's been gone for the whole movie. I mean, we're in the last 20 minutes here. And they the the end of the third act, and then they pull their vehicles out and they start jumping on trains, jumping off trains. Max is all over the place jumping on vehicles. I thought it was right. fine. I think the action scene from the Road Warrior at the end was better than this one. I guess I don't have much of a problem with it, except I don't think it's too exciting. Nothing like we'll see in Fury Road, I would say. And right. that could just be technical limitations as well. But I do think it's a bit of a step down. Um, also, I was really hoping we would see Mel Gibson and Tina Turner fight. We don't. What a disappointment. Yeah, we Come don't. Come on. Yeah. That's why we're here. Yeah, we... we <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. That, that does... I wonder if... Hmm, I don't know why they didn't have him fight. That just seems weird to me. Because you have Mel Gibson, which is already up and coming, and Tina Turner, who already has is or is already established in pop culture. I wonder why they didn't have him fight. What the heck? Ooh. Oh well. Yeah, this action scene. I mean, yeah, it's fine. Um, it's definitely not the worst filmed action scene in the Mad Max in this Mad Max trilogy so far. Oh. Um, but it is nothing great. I think pretty much every action scene from Mad Max Two, I think, tops this at least in terms of how it's shot. Uh, this one, I think, is much longer and, and stuff, which is nice than a lot of the action scenes from 2, but it's it's not great. It feels like a step down from what we've already, from the bar that's already been set for us here. So... I yeah. found this one to be better paced than the one in the sequel at the end. The one at the, of the previous one at the end felt far too long to me. This one felt like a pretty decent length. Except, yeah, you are wondering, they're on a train, train tracks are got to run out eventually, and where is it going to go anyway? And it looks like Jedediah and Jedediah Jr. have, like, sanded up the train, and he leaves his son to go perform a stick-up, which was kind of funny, right. but they follow him. I guess they climb down that whole ladder, they follow him, they, and they, they cut it up so it's not as long, but then they try and get on a plane, and Max, of course, is going to right. sacrifice himself. He, he performs a major crash. Walks away completely unscathed. He's completely fine. And they they right. do get in their air raft. So all of that kid stuff wasn't pointless, actually. It was all perfect setup for <laughs> them getting in their air raft and going to Tomorrow Morrowland. The one thing that I'm left with is what about the tribe that stayed? They just stayed there and they just forgot about him or something? I don't know. It's an okay so. ending here. The one thing that I felt was the biggest cop out was when Tina Turner rolls up, they've got him surrounded and she's like, 
See ya, raggedy man. That was a good one. Bye. And I'm like, what? Why? Yeah, she spares his life for reasons that aren't explained. Because he's because he's cool. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't what know. The heck? It. This. I think. Mad Max uh, Beyond Thunderdome, for whatever reason, at just random times, decides not to explain things. I don't know why. Well, it's uh but it also kind of it also hurts it, it also hurts uh the viewing process because you kind of need some reasons for some things to happen especially when some things are explained and some things are not like this here at the end she decides to spare his life for reasons that are never told to us. No, see what they should have done and the reason they do spare his life is because he's the hero. They've kind of painted themselves into a corner. They can't just shoot him. I guess they can't capture him and leave him on this grim note. What would have been better is if they would have started to capture him and then maybe they circled back with the plane and buzzed him with the plane and they would have threw out like a rope ladder or something and he could have like ran and jumped and caught it and escaped that way. I don't know. I was just, I'm trying to think of a way that kind of fixes this ending where we still have this kind of dark motive from Auntie, but Max is able to get away. But of course, he is the road warrior. He's a nomad. We've got to let him travel. He's got to have traveled over all of Australia by this point. You yeah, would think, you would think. But Auntie just lets him go. And we get a weird kind of ending here where they're just slow-mo flying into this very orange-looking Sydney, Australia, which definitely made me think of Blade Runner 2049 where they go to Las Vegas and everything's orange and yep they ripped it off yeah they did they They watched Denis film Denis Villeneuve (laughs) is a hack he stole from Mad Max don't believe it (laughs) (laughs) that's what it it was a little weird and we get they're like hanging out of a plane to look at this amazing city that tomorrow tomorrow land that they've been searching for and we get this ending of her telling telling the tribal story of the leader. And okay, once again, I really do like the writing of their language. It's a consistent tone of how yeah. they speak that does feel unique to the world and unique to like any other film that I've seen. So I I like that element a lot. Have you seen uh, Cloud Atlas? No, I know of it. I have not okay. seen it. Okay, well, it, this is not a spoiler. It's okay. In the end of Cloud Atlas, they're kind of the time Hanks characters. They're all gathered around the stars, even though they're like a bajillion years into the future. And he's just telling their tribal tales. And it's just kind of left with this like tribal future. I don't know. It didn't wrap around to the beginning like the Road Warrior did. I saw where they're going with it, but it would right. just, it just kind of left me with like, ah, oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, at least it, it does wrap things up, but at the same time, it's, I guess, not as fulfilling as, like, at least in my opinion, the previous movie. Yeah, they, she just says, this ain't one body's tale, it's the tale of us all. They'll come a night when they seize the distant light, and they'll be coming home. Uh, okay, I, I guess that's supposed to just kind of wrap up the, wrap up the trilogy and give us hope that... The world will rebuild into a proper civilization and not this cage match octagon world. Right, right, right. So, 
I mean, I guess I, if we want to go back for just a minute, I guess I could make the assumption that now that uh, Auntie has seen the kindness that Max has shown towards these kids, now she's like, ah, he's changed my life too. And that's why she lets him go. And then maybe that also kind of helps with the narrative that they're that they're kind of spun out here of maybe the world war would turn to the way that it was and everyone's kind again. That's a bit of a stretch, though. I think it could have the film could have been served a bit better as if it wasn't such a jarring cut from the beginning of Thunderdome to the kid tribe, then back to Thunderdome. While Max was doing whatever he does in the kid tribe, we could have cut back to. And I know we did get like one small sequence, just well, not even a sequence, a small scene where they're lowering Master into the pigs and he's getting knocked around and. Auntie was like, "Hey, be be nice to him. We need we need him." Uh, I don't know. I think they probably right. could have cut back a few more times. Just reminded us, "Hey, there is coming." They could have tied those back together and shown. I don't know. They just could have they, strengthened that up a bit better. Yeah, they could have used that time to develop Master's character, perhaps. Oh yeah, and actually, you know, make him. Uh, yeah, make him. You know, actually, give him more reason to exist here in the ending, and why they need to save him. Yeah, and I will say that's something that all these other 80 movies have done a better job of is setting up in the first act a goal for our adventurers to embark upon. The Goonies, their parents are losing all of their houses. They can't find the money to pay off their mortgages or whatever, and they're going to build a big mall, going to tear their houses down. So they got to go find maybe some treasure. They got to go find some money for it. Um, right. Indiana Jones, you know, with the Temple of Doom, he uh, we we figure out all about that. Back to the Future, um, he is placed in the time machine. He has to make sure his parents get back together. There's always a motivation set up in the first act that we tie back to in the third act in order to pay off. That's I mean, that's really just basic story structuring, and I feel like they're kind of missing that here in this movie. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome? Beyond Thunderdome is very much a mixed bag. Uh, I kind of expressed this a bit earlier, where as much good things that they present, they also there are also an equal number of bad things. Uh, I like that they go with a more character study approach. They explore Max's character and develop him a lot more than really the last two movies have combined. I really do enjoy that. I like this power struggle that he comes across in Bartertown compared and contrasted with the kids he comes across later in the movie. But that also comes with a lot of caveats, most notably the kids. Although I do think that they deserve to be in the story and uh, are very much necessary, they also take away a lot. They are they really slow the movie down. And they really, I think, are also underutilized along with along with a number of things here because we spend a lot of time here developing their tribe, but I wish more was done to, I guess, not make it as slow as when we get to this part. There are also a number of different issues that I have, which I've stated before. All in all, I'm on the fence of if I like it or if I don't like it. I think I'm going to be on the side of I like it, but that doesn't excuse it from any anything that I've said in terms of criticism. So in the end, it's going to be on the generous side a six, but 
a very, very slight not recommend because although it is a six and although I do think that I would go back and watch it again someday, I don't think, at least compared to what has already been set up previously, I don't think it lives up to Mad Max. Aside from some very good changes that they've made, they're also, once again, taking away a lot of the, all the stuff that made Mad Max as enjoyable as it is uh, with the last one and the in the first one. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome is the cheesiest, 80st film in this trilogy thus far. Acting as a standalone story, Thunderdome can be approached by kids and adults who haven't seen the previous film, and I'll say it, they can have a fun time. Outlandish characters, pretty good set pieces, and zany plots makes for a fun little 80s nostalgia trip, albeit a shallow one. Of the three films, this is the weakest narrative-wise, and that's not saying much. I get the plot is Max stumbles upon Bartertown, doesn't follow the rules, gets found by this lost tribe, leaves to save some, they go to Bartertown to steal the midget genius, get chased out, he helps them escape to Sydney where they build a new civilization, and he gets off the hook and continues to wander. Which makes me wonder why George Miller made this third installment. What did he find compelling in the story to create this film? Despite this movie having severe issues, it's actually my favorite so far because I had the most fun with it. I actually enjoyed myself. Thunderdome isn't cheap and radically uneven like the first, nor is it just flat out boring like the second. I had fun for the most part and I would pick this Blu-ray out of the $5 bin. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome receives 6 stars out of 10 with a very slight recommend. So maybe, listeners, you might be a little confused because it probably didn't sound like I was too positive on this movie throughout the review. And and I, I, did, I wasn't. I wanted to be honest about the issues and explore those issues. But viewing it from the simple approach of it's fun, it's inoffensive, it has a moderately positive worldview of Max sacrificing himself. Now, he gets off the hook. There's really no consequences to his sacrifice. I guess he doesn't get to go see Sydney. Darn it. But he still does sacrifice himself for the kids, for the innocents that do get away. He does save them from the savages, essentially. So that's a positive element to it. And uh, like I said, for the most part, you can have fun. If you're just like, hey, I, I want to go live in the 80s today. And I want my kids to maybe have a little fun with me too. It's like I said, your kids might hear a, an F word and see some scary things. So be conscientious of how old your kids are when you show them yeah. this movie, if you, if you show them to them. But yeah, it's, yeah. I'm still saying it still is a weak film. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, it's, and for me, I'd say it's weak, but in, in like a collection of areas because yes, it's yes. weak maybe in storytelling or maybe editing wise yes right. weak in character development no think that's where I'm landing on is because I that's why I enjoy myself as much as I did with this movie is I really do enjoy this exploration of Max's character because we really haven't gotten too much of that in the last two really at all and I really do enjoy character studies like a lot so it was nice to see that from a perspective of a post-apocalyptic world like Mad Max. Now, will we ever get that again? I suppose we'll have to wait till next week when we review Fury Road. 
Yes, Mad Max Fury Road. We will be coming back to you next week with George Miller's 10 Oscar nominee, six-time Oscar-winning film, Mad Max Fury Road. I'm super pumped. I'm also super pumped to watch the Black and Chrome edition with Alan. That'll be our first time seeing that. I found it for a good deal, listeners, so if you also want to pick up this good deal. I already own the movie on Blu-ray. I didn't really want to drop an extra 20 plus bucks to just get the Black and Chrome edition on Blu-ray. So I found, I guess, Microsoft sells movies now, just like uh, yeah, Voodoo and so. Fandango and um, all the Google Play or whatever it's called. Microsoft does. So Microsoft had a bundle for twelve ninety nine. You got the Black and Chrome edition plus just the regular movie. So I'm like, hey, that's pretty good. I've already got the Blu-ray and... I don't have to spend an extra $25 for just a black and chrome. So that's what I got. So if you guys want a cheaper option for black and chrome, or you could just rent it, I guess. But I'm excited to see this movie in black and white, considering this movie is so colorful. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see what how different it is with bright it, when it, with it being black and white. It's also silent, right? There isn't any dialogue, if I'm correct. That was Mi- it's just music. Well, that was Miller's original vision. That's what he really wanted it to be. But this one does have dialogue. Okay. All right. Maybe we can shut oh. off the dialogue channel. We'll find yeah. out. <laughs> just mute the whole thing. I don't right. know. One so. time there was a weird setup with my surround sound system. I had Avatar on, and it did. It muted the channel for dialogue, and it was just the score. I don't know how it happened, but it was pretty cool. I'm like, wow, I, I'm watching just the movie with the score. How's this happening? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, hey, a great film is one that you can watch without with it muted. It's true. You should be able to still follow the movie without any dialogue. That's when you know you have a great movie. That's true. Sometimes what I want to do is mute The Wizard of Oz and turn on Pink Floyd's uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Have you heard about this? Dark Side of the Rainbow? I have. I have. I can't wait. I have heard about this. I really want to do that. I've always wanted to do that. Maybe it works with Mad Max. I don't know. We'll give it a shot. (laughs) We'll find out and see. But like Uh, I said- You'll be missing- Well, I guess I can't say too much because that'll be next week. But I feel like you'll be missing one huge chunk of it, which is- kind of important (laughs) that's true but we will be coming back with mad max fury road and then we will be coming back to uh mr Shyamalan for just a bit we'll be coming back with signs and then the village signs well okay this was actually mel gibson's last mad max film so far anyway but that doesn't mean we're leaving mel gibson behind just like the uh people did in the plane we care about him a little bit more than them apparently um, he is coming back in Signs, so we will be reviewing him again very soon here in about oh, two weeks. That's right. I forgot he was in that movie. Yes. In mm. good old Joaquin. Right. Joaquin Phoenix. Right, well, I'm pretty excited. I, this is one that I haven't seen. Actually, there's a big chunk of movies right around this time in uh, his career. Oh. In the Shawlan's career that I just haven't seen. Aside from that happening, pretty much everything from here until the visit I haven't seen. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm, I'm excited for you to see Signs then. I thought you had seen Signs. Yeah. Signs is probably ah. the one I've seen the most, actually. Okay. So, well, it'd be interesting for me to come in as a newbie. Yeah. I think I might have to show you that one, too. I've got the Blu-ray, so we might have to check that out in the theater room, get the full theatrical experience. All right. All right. So the one thing that I did want to mention also is 
I do kind of hope in a future Mad Max movie it's not just the desert, but we also kind of get more of a watery area like in this movie we saw. I know there was kind of supposed to be, there's like a watery area talked about in more of an oasis area talked about in Fury Road, but I'm hoping in the fifth film we might get that. I don't know. It was just, I really liked it. It was kind of a breath of fresh air and it, was, it looked really cool, so... Yeah, I wonder if they ever go for something like that. I hope they do. Hopefully. That'd be nice to get kind of a change of pace instead of, you know, just desert the whole time. Aside from the first one, the first one isn't set in the desert. That's true. But that doesn't count. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our review of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. We want to know what you thought of this movie, though. Is this possibly your favorite in the whole series? Or is this your most hated in the whole series? We want to know what you thought, so leave your comments down below. We do read your comments, and we do respond, so I am interested in seeing what you thought of this. Also, don't forget, if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. That really does help us get noticed in the rankings. It helps other people find it as well. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So the more people that join in listening to us, the more people we get joining in on the conversation, and we would love to just continue to build the Silver Screen Guide community. Films are meant to be shared and talked about, and that's what we're doing here. So by subscribing, sharing with your friends and family, and giving us a five-star rating, that really does help us get noticed and brings in more people to the conversation about these films we're talking about. And if you want to dive deeper, if you're not content with just listening to one review a week, go ahead and head on over to our Patreon page for just the price of a cup of coffee. You can get all kinds of exclusive bonus goodies that are yours to keep, such as film commentaries. Alan and I will sit down and watch a film and we'll give a full-length commentary over that. So it's like you're watching it with us. Q&As, you can ask us anything. Our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers and even some bonus podcasts that only subscribers will get. It's all over on the Patreon page. It's really easy to get to. Just look in the description below. The link is right there. It's impossible to miss. That does help us keep the lights on here. It does help us pay for bandwidth and storage capacities. That does cost money, unfortunately. And if you do want this um, program to remain free, go ahead and head on over there and help us out. We greatly appreciate it. Or if you just want to give us a one-time donation of whatever you think is best for your wallet, that's greatly appreciated as well. So once again, listeners, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Sure thing. We will see you all next week with Mad Max Fury Road.